The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Welcome to CPR Unplugged, where real people share real stories of hope, resilience, and inspiration. My name is Rob, and I'm your host for this episode of On the Spotlight where we are pleased to be joined by our Chief Clinical Officer of CPR, Dr. Amy Paul. Amy, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So Amy, tell us to get us started a little bit about your role as Chief Clinical Officer. What does that exactly mean um, for CPR and what do you do day to day in regards to your role? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I think as I've been in this role, it's evolved. The initial idea was that I would sort of have maybe the clinical vision of CPR and and sort of help identify what's important to us, standards of practice we want to maintain, um, and maybe even areas of interest that we want to grow clinically. Like everything and everyone in CPR, I think we all um, have a hard time in a good way, staying in our lane. And so uh, there's lots of things that I get involved in, um, which I, which I love. I, I, I definitely don't like to be stagnant, but so I still do clinical work, which is super important to me. I'm part of the quality and compliance piece of CPR. I get involved in special projects that we have and building community relationships with whether that's payers or other behavioral health partners or other lines of service, you know, everything from staffing clinical cases still to support our clinicians to uh, what's the bigger picture and how do we want to become better in the delivery of our services. Sounds like a full plate. Yes, yes. So in terms of clinical work, Amy, what do you do uh, nowadays with CPR? What sort of role clinically do you play? Yeah, so trained as a psychologist, and I I really don't know that I can ever see myself not uh, still providing services. So my main focus is, uh, as I'm sure everybody knows, uh, my passion is with first responders. So I still... um, maintain relationships with our fire and PD side to provide what we would call post-critical incident evaluations. So whether an officer gets involved in a shooting or there's a terrible child death or um, something out of the ordinary, maybe like a natural disaster of some level, uh, I would come in to either provide on-scene support, and we have other clinicians who do that with me as well as as, um, Tom McSherry, or I'm, I'm also seeing them after the event is over and um, helping gauge whether how impacted they are, if they're impacted at all by this event, and really how we should sort of um, look at care for them moving forward to, to hopefully get them back um, into service and kind of feeling resilient about what they've been a part of. So that's a main part of what I do. I still have a small caseload that I carry that I sort of promised these folks that even though my role was changing and I was going to have more on my plate that I would always have a space for them. And so I I rarely take on new cases, but I have a set of clients that I've been seeing for a long time that I continue to treat when appropriately necessary. So it sounds like you actually go out into the field, uh, like when there's uh, critical events that have happened, are you actually on site of, of those events? 
Yes. Um, so our, like our relationship with Phoenix PD. So if a, you know, we recently unfortunately had a commander who got killed in the line of duty and two other officers were injured. Um, so that was a huge scene. That was a very active scene as they were still trying to negotiate and manage the suspect. So that was a live scene. So I got sent to the hospital where the deceased commander got sent and the two other officers who one were going into surgery and managing the family at the hospital and the other officers who responded. And then, um, for instance, Tom went to the scene as that was still going on, managing the officers still on the scene who were holding down the fort there and also still trying to engage the suspect and, um, and then obviously the aftermath that comes with that. And then when we provide that type of on-scene support, that usually lasts for several days, meaning that, you know, it's still evolving. We, we learn who's been involved, every, every person down to who, who was an officer who maybe provided CPR to that commander, who rescued folks out of that house, to who transported people to the hospital and we're checking in with them, making sure they're getting whatever they need, checking in with their family. And then we help plan what comes next, which is a critical incident stress debriefing to help uh, resolve some of the leftover stuff, for lack of a better clinical term, that might be there still as a result of that event. So do you uh, and or CPR offer follow-up services after such a, an event like that? Yeah, absolutely. I really don't think there's any ceiling to what we'll offer. And what I, what I mean by that is that even if I see someone for a post-critical incident evaluation, I might meet with them three or four times as I'm sort of monitoring them over the next few months. It, or if I think they need a higher level of care, um, maybe I'm referring them into our own outpatient or medication services. If, if we believe that their children need support of because of what happened, and maybe we don't offer that level of support to kids of that age, we'll find eight partnering agencies that we'll work with. So uh, we, we, you know, we sort of, we take them in as our family at that point and, and are trying to make sure that we're meeting their needs. You know, two of those officers who were injured were, had to obviously stay in a rehab center and then be sent home. So if it's not appropriate for them to come into the outpatient services, because they're not able to mobility wise, right? We have our SNF team who can who can take on that care, right? So it's, you know, whatever service meets their need. And, and if we need to, to join with someone else to get them what they need, like the 100 club who partners to pay for services or for first responders and their family members when a tragedy happens, we'll, we'll work with those agencies. There's a full continuum of aftercare that uh, CPR can offer. Absolutely. And like I said, at that point, you know, if we see them again on a different scene, we know their families now, we, we sort of know, we know them in a different way. So uh, this happens to me, I know this happens for Tom, you know, we'll get a text six months later, you know, them checking in with us or us, maybe we'll send the text checking in with them. So it's sort of this relationship that stays there. And what got you interested in that uh, specialty or that area of behavioral health Oh, that's a good question. Um, so initially, um, I don't know how many people know this, but I wanted to be an FBI profiler. Oh, wow. so, so that's that's what I wanted to do um, and was super interested in. There's the psychiatrist Park Dietz who looked at cases like Columbine um, or, or there's been other, you know, looked at sort of the serial killers and sort of, I was really kind of interested in, in the, in the profiling and understanding of how people um, 
chose those behaviors or made some of those decisions. Um, but unfortunately, what I learned super quickly is I gained a relationship with the FBI and I got trained as an FBI negotiator while I was still in my doctoral program and, uh, and was partnering with them and volunteering at certain things is that those are statisticians sitting in a room doing math. And that if anyone knows me, math is not my thing. And I like to talk to people and I kind of like to dig in and know what's going on. So that wasn't exciting to me. So um, my mentor, who was a psychologist and also a police officer, I knew I wanted to do like a, what they called it back then, like police psychology as part of this FBI profile. I kind of wanted to be, I don't know if you guys remember, um, in Lethal Weapon, the psychologist that everyone kind of razzed and like, you know, she was like there to talk about their feelings. But I sort I wanted to be her or um, even like S special victims, you know, I know it sounds silly, but like those old law and order shows where there was a psychologist helping consult on cases. That's kind of where I saw myself. But I had this mentor who was a psychologist and a police officer, and he sort of guided me a little bit differently. And I fell in love with this part of the work. And what got you into behavioral health to begin with? I knew, I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> because you guys kind of prepped me, but you know, that's an interesting, uh, you know, I don't know that I, I've ever really sat and kind of been able to pinpoint one thing. I, when I went to undergrad, I sort of had this debate of medical school or being a psychologist. I know, and it sounded kind of, sounded kind of weird. Like I think I wanted to either go be a pediatrician is what I thought I wanted to do. And then I was, or psychology. I think what stuck me um, with psychology was the interaction, sort of that long-term interaction and that could evolve versus what you see sort of in the medical side of healthcare that maybe isn't so long-term or it's kind of short abbreviated stints that you might have with someone. And so, um, so I tried to, to mold those kind of together. So I did, a, I focused on neuropsychology. So I got to work with neurologists. I worked in trauma centers. So I got to still enjoy the medical side of it, which my brain was super interested in, in that piece. But then I got to, I think, focus on the, fo the people in a different way um, and, and kind of the resilience piece that I think we all always talk about. So even though maybe something wasn't working out, maybe they medically, you know, were battling something that, you know, uh, had a very long haul to it that, you know, that we could sort of give them other tools and kind of be part of that process with them in a different way. And was there anything in particular that drew you to CPR? Oh, yeah, that's an easy question. Um, it was Tom McSherry. <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I was, I moved to Arizona to work with the sheriff's office and um, be their in-house psychologist for the, their employees. And um, almost immediately, I think I was tasked with trying to figure out what are other resources where we can get these folks and their family members support um, as, you know, it was a group of psychologists inside this agency, but we definitely couldn't manage 3000 employees. And so uh, CPR was one of the agencies that I came across and, and literally no matter what I asked for, hey, Tom, do you have someone who does EMDR? Hey, Tom, can we get someone in today? Hey, Tom, I, I'm worried about someone. I think they need to be stabilized with meds. Um, he was my only point of contact and, and being who he is, he didn't ever say, hey, no, call this person. He would handle it himself and I would be able to connect employees into care that way. And so it was just a natural was a relationship. It was, it was a good relationship. He, he helped train our CISM team 
give them ongoing training. And so when he, when he asked, I was grateful and honored. I thought he was kidding at first when he, when he asked if I wanted to come work here and, um, it was a great move. It, it really, um, I didn't realize at the time that even though I love the public safety side of the house, my clinical skills were sort of muted, right? Cause I was only seeing one type of person or it, the, you know, the challenge was the same every time. And so, so coming back into a clinical environment, I didn't realize how much I missed the clinical engagement of your peers and staffing things. And so um, it just was a really good fit. And how, how long have you been with CPR, Amy? Um, and how long have you been the, uh, the chief clinical officer? Uh, I came over in 2012, I think February, around February of 2012. And then, ooh, 2013. 15 or 16, I think is when I became the chief clinical officer. Okay. And one of the other things that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to follow up on is special projects. Any special projects uh, going on right now or in the works for the future? Yeah. So what, as we grow our public safety side of the house, one of the things that is very new in that world is, is you, if you think about first responders, they're reactive, right? So they react to things. They're, they're not necessarily proactive or not, probably not preventive is probably the way I'd say that. And so there's a whole movement now where these agencies are realizing that maybe we can catch or support our employees differently before they are in a 15, 20 career, year career where, you know, there's multiple shootings, there's multiple critical incidents, there's things under their belt and they're having a hard time managing it or there's an alcohol problem or whatever it is. So they're, they're initiating what they're calling these mental health wellness checks. And where CPR is, is playing in that role is that we have a lot of agencies that we partner with, whether fire or PD, who are allowing us to pilot what that would look like and get to kind of be in the forefront of how to do that. And so um, um, that's been super exciting. And so we've gotten to do this a few times for several different agencies, just kind of practicing what that would look like. And so now... We have uh, Scottsdale PD who is using us as one of their main providers for this and they have, they're mandating their people to come to these mental health wellness checks. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to train other providers in the clinics to be able to do those um, so that doesn't just fall on me. And then Phoenix PD wants to do the same thing. And so you have probably a set of 300 employees that they will mandate over to have these mental health wellness checks and same thing. They're going to only use CPR as the, as their mental health provider in this. And, and, and what they're basically saying to their employees is we care about you. We don't want to miss anything. Let's not wait till shit hits the fan and let's see, you know, and so you don't have to tell us about it. We don't have to know what happens in there and you can talk about everything that you want. It doesn't have to be work related and please go do this for yourself. So um, that's exciting, and that's something that we're working on. One of the things that I would like to be the future of with CPR is since we take care of the first responder employee throughout their career, I would like to be in the beginning part where we actually help hire them. So I used to do the, the psychological evaluations for the hiring for um, the sheriff's office, and I've done it in a few other places, and um, that would be really exciting to be able to help support an agency in, in appropriately picking uh, someone who's a good fit and hopefully that we're helping guide that decision and um, the psychological wellness that kind of goes along that we hope someone would have going into that field and then being able to follow them and being, you know, it'll be a continuum of care. Basically they would recognize us, they would remember us and we'd continue to be part of their career. 
um, in that agency. So that's one of my big goals and hopes. And then another project that I'm hoping that we can do is we continue to train people and provide clinical supervision is that uh, we actually become an APA certified um, internship site so that we can bring in more psychologists and, and folks to kind of help. Um, obviously, we would train folks. We would uh, train them, in, as we say, the CPR way. They would continue to provide care for us, whatever service line they were interested in, and then hopefully have more, a more robust clinical supervision piece as we continue to grow that as well. Very good. Very exciting things in the pipeline, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the big picture. Yeah. And that's kind of, it's funny you say that, the big picture. Sometimes that's, sometimes it's, you know, we have our folks like Mike Boylan and who can kind of see that big picture and, 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 you know, and I'm, I'm still learning how to, how does it all kind of come together, right? You know, sometimes you can work on a project and, and how does it impact everything that we do? Because I think what we are better at realizing now at CPR is that there's not one line of service that doesn't cross over, right? We right. really, we really are sort of a 360 and can kind of encapsulate someone and hopefully get them the right, the right level of care. And given all that uh, first responders have to face on a day-to-day -day basis, and, and now in this unprecedented times that's added to it, what sort of tips or things might you say to first responders so that they're, they're better taking care of themselves, like as far as their own self-care on a day-to-day -day basis? What sort of things would you recommend? Well, I first want to say that, you know, in that category of first responders, I do believe everyone who works at CPR falls into that category, right? As we have clinicians going into the hospitals or, or, you know, doing the community crisis response, I think it, I think is, you know, we are a layer of those first responders. I think some of the big conversations that we're having currently with, you know, the state of the world with COVID-19 is how do you, you know, how do they balance that there's a majority of the world who is basically stopping to some degree, right? We're saying it's okay. You're allowed to take a pause, take care of yourself, protect yourself. But we, but on this other side, we have an expectation that you're still there to meet a need and to, and to protect us or to take care of people. And so it's, it's sort of being able to have that balance of what do you really need? And then what really are the expectations that you know that you can meet? So for instance, I think what we forget about sometimes is, and we, and we got to learn this with our own folks, is that over the past few weeks, as I talked to different officers or firefighters or EMS crews or whatever, is that there are, they're still people. They are people who have family members who have autoimmune disorders. They have family members who are scared now for a different reason when they go out into their job, right? So it's now I'm not just worried about you getting hurt, but now I'm worried that you're going to bring something home to us or to you, you know? And so how do they, how do they balance being that human and it's okay to have those fears and take the precautions and then also go do the work, right? So uh, one of the things that I really, um, I think for the first time in my own career was able to sort of wrap my head around that was when we were responding to that um, the commander who got killed for Phoenix PD is that I showed up to the hospital and they required me to wear an N95. So I put on this N95 and I'm trying to talk to a grieving widow or to other officers who dragged his body out and, and whatever. And I had this mask on and it made me feel so disconnected 
right? And it was odd to watch the whole sea of people who also had those masks on. But then, it, but then at the same time, I was kind of scared being in the hospital and I didn't want to lean up against a wall and I didn't take a seat for the five, six hours that I was there and, and just, re- you know, I didn't touch anything, right? And so it was, it was, you know, and I came home for the next several days as I went back in and out of the hospital into other places and out of different precincts and I was taking a shower three times a day, right? And so you hear about these guys who are disrobing in the laundry room or even outside in their garage. Um, They're using a water hose to rinse off before they come inside the house, right? Because they're afraid of those things. Or like I said, their, their spouses are now saying, please don't go out there, but they have to go out there, right? So I think we're all sort of dealing with that. And that's, and it's honoring that your loved ones are worried and not discounting that because I think that could cause a bigger riff at home and being sure that you pay attention to those things, but also kind of, you know, honoring your own, own fears and, and, and that it's okay to have those, right. That they can take the cape off and it's okay to be concerned about that. You know, I, I think of one officer that I encountered who was like, Oh, COVID-19, not a big deal. It's okay. And I'm not even gloving up. And, and you look at that guy and you're like, is that really how he feels? Or is that he thinks that's a persona that we expect from him? Right. So, so I think, and this is true even outside of the COVID-19 time of, of, rec- of just being able to recognize where does the career stop and where's the person at, right? And I even have to tell myself that. And I think I try to encourage that even of the people we work with um, and have these types of conversations, like it's okay to turn it off and sort of allow the other part of what you feel or think about um, come into play. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Amy. And anything else you'd like to share with us before we wrap up the the episode? I'm just, you know, honored that you guys asked me to do this. And I think uh, if I could say one thing to CPR, I don't get to meet everybody. I don't get to know all the faces and know all the names as we continue to grow. But I really do hope that everyone knows that I'm a phone call away. They can staff anything with me, reach out to me for anything. And and I really... um, love the family we created. So I, I just hope that, you know, people know that, you know, even if they don't know me, I'm someone they can reach out to as well. And so many of us with CPR feel the same way, Amy. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Thank you. And remember to make time to care for yourself and others. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support. 